Last week, <clears throat> excuse me, last week, Abram was willing to sin to avoid potential conflict with the Egyptians. This week, he's faced with an actual conflict with his nephew, Lot. So how will he respond? Genesis chapter 13, beginning in verse 5, we'll read through the end of the chapter. Please uh, turn there if you aren't already ready. So you can follow along with God's word, the word alone, which is solid ground, a mighty rock on which we build. Amen. Genesis 13, verses 5 through 18. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, Walk through the land, the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What is the problem that's facing Abram? Well, there's too much stuff and not enough space. Uh, it resulted in fighting between these two groups that were supposed to be one big family. It was fighting maybe over water sources, fighting over shade, fighting over patches of grazing areas. Interestingly, uh, they don't seem to be fighting with the Canaanites and Perizzites who are living in the land. Why do we have conflicts? Fighting with enemies makes sense. Abram's a foreigner. If he had come into this land and it was like, and Abram didn't get along with the Canaanites and the Perizzites, be like, well, that makes sense. But what, what about fighting within families or fighting within communities? Why do siblings fight? Like my sister Jennifer and I did all the time growing up until one day, like, switch was flipped and we became best friends. Like, what, what happened there? Why do husbands and wives fight? I remember in high school, we had 11 seniors on our soccer team at Cross Saints Christian, and a lot of us did not get along. Uh, one time, me and another guy on the team were even yelling at each other on the field during the game. And the ref 
kept like looking at us, wanting to blow his whistle to call a foul, but we hadn't done anything to the other team. I think eventually he did. It was just like, guys, just stop. Free kick that way. Why do teammates fight? Or why do two men serving as elders at the same church fight? Or two deacons or two members? Why do we fight and have conflict? And the easy answer is, well, sin. Duh. Like the right answer to most questions is Jesus. And the rest of them are probably sin. And that answer is true. But I don't really think it's specific enough to be helpful for us. Right? Why do we fight? Sin. All right, stop sinning, stop fighting. Be like, well, that was unproductive. Can you turn to James chapter 4? Oops. James chapter 4. Thankful that, that God's word, truth is just filled and, and fleshed out across different passages. And in James 4, we read God's answer to this important question, why do we have conflicts? He says this, what, James chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So we fight We have conflicts because we want something, some things, not always just one thing. And whenever we don't get what we want, we're willing to go to war with whoever's in our way. Now that sounds petty and toddlerish, doesn't it? I'll be the first to admit the selfish, sinful pettiness of my heart. Are you willing to admit the selfish, sinful pettiness of your heart, not someone else's, your heart. I'm not willing to fight with Leanne over big things. I don't know that, I, we've, we've had a couple bigger disagreements, I think maybe one. That's not what our fights are over. <laughs> our fights are over the dumbest things. I think if you're, you know, siblings, spouses, neighbors, right? Grass mowing lines. That's worth suing, pranking, right? Murdering rose bushes. You read these stories like, that's so dumb. Yes, we are. We fight over insignificant things. Why? Why do I, why would I do that? Why would I fight with Leanne over nothing? Because of my sinful heart. We are ruled by our desires, by our passions, by our affections, by our hearts. The true desires of our hearts are always revealed most clearly when we don't get what we want. Why do we have conflicts? Because we don't get what we want. And if we fight because we don't get what we want, then how can we resolve conflicts? Well, option one, don't want anything. We could try not wanting anything ever. It's a very stoic approach. Uh, 
My stubbornness often presents this as a legitimate option whenever Leanne and I are disagreeing about something. So it's like, well, I don't need anything then, ever. (laughs) Well, doing that is next to impossible. Actually, impossible. It's dehumanizing also. To have no needs, to have no wants is to be less than who God made us to be. We all have hearts, not just physically speaking, but spiritually speaking. The Bible speaks of that. And those hearts have desires. That's what they do. That's what they are. Desire factories. Desire thrones. It's how God designed our hearts. So trying to deny our desires, pretend that that's not true of us, we're actually just slaving ourselves to other desires. Like the desire to not be ruled by desires is a desire. You can't escape it. It's part of being human, and you're human. Part of being made in the image of God to have these affections. God has affections, desires. So not wanting is actually impossible. How can we resolve conflicts? Well, we could always give in. If Leanne always did what I wanted, we would never fight. That's what I've been saying. No. What's the answer to that? Well, if I always did what Leanne wanted, then we wouldn't fight. That's also true. And this is what we often think and say as parents, isn't it? Or teachers, any aspect of authority. Well, the problem is you aren't doing what I said. If you would just do everything that I wanted, we wouldn't have these fights anymore. Go to your room. Well, let's say that we did that. There's a problem still. And the problem is idolatry. It still remains. Me always getting what I want would feed my idolatry of self. That I have this complex where I think I'm God or, or should be. And if Leanne were to always do everything that I wanted, it would feed my, my sense, this God complex for me. And it actually would set me up as an idol for her. So she would be idolizing me because I'm not God, clearly, and should not be treated as such. It would be hell on earth for both of us. Not just because she wouldn't get her way, but because of the idolatry, our sin would be multiplying. Our sinful desires would never be dealt with if it was always just her giving in to me or me just giving in to her. So we could try resolving conflicts through compromise. I won't tell you the source because I don't have permission, but I heard someone in our body say that they never, they've never fought about any decisions in their marriage, because when they were first married a long time ago, they decided that the husband would make all the major decisions, and the wife would make all the minor decisions, and in 40-plus years of marriage, they've never had a major decision. But we could compromise. On Mondays, we do things my way. Tuesdays, we do things Leanne's way. Or before noon, we do things my way. Afternoon, we do things Leanne's way. Or tit for tat, one for one, quid pro quo, right? We could just go back and forth and compromise. That's what we should do when my desires, Leanne's desires, run contrary to each other. Now, that works in one sense. And I think that this is as far as worldly wisdom is willing to go. 
This is, this is the, the best therapeutic option. It's like, well, you want something, she wants something. Sometimes you do what she wants, sometimes she does what you want. But why are there conflicts? It's because of my sinful desires, because of Leanne's sinful desires. So does compromise deal with the problem of my lusts or desires that I'm willing to fight over? Does it do anything about the problem that caused the fight in the first place, or does it just sort of bury it? What do you think? It buries it. So if it doesn't deal with the problem, then it doesn't really resolve the conflict. It might stop it. It's Band-Aid. It's peace in our time. But World War II is coming. Is this the biblical path to resolving conflicts is really a better answer. That just doesn't work. But is it the biblical path? Is this all that we have to offer to each other? All that God has to offer to us? Compromise. No, compromise doesn't deal with my heart problem, and it isn't the biblical path. The biblical path for us to Christians, as Christians, to resolve our conflicts begins as uh, Robert Jones used to pastor in the area, some of your pastor, uh, just down the road, now teaches at Southern Seminary. He's been here in this pulpit to teach to us before. He has his wonderful book, Pursuing Peace. He says this, the biblical path for us as Christians resolving our conflict begins by making it our life goal to please God. He says, what does it mean to please God? Well, simply put, to please God means to bring him delight by being and doing what he desires. In this sense, pleasing God is no different than pleasing anyone else. We find out what the person wants us to be or do, and we seek to be or do that. And he then goes on to emphasize that we must, as Christians, make pleasing God our single, all-consuming life goal. Not ourselves, not others, but God. Because this is, this is a truly wonderful truth. Not just, not just a small solution, but a truth. If I always did what was pleasing to the Lord, submitting all of my desires to him, and Leanne always did what was pleasing to the Lord, submitting all her desires to him, we would never fight. Because the Lord is not going to be in conflict with, him, conflict with himself. And I mentioned that to her, and she said, well, that sounds more like heaven than it does anything on earth. And it does sound like heaven. That's the type of peace that we are longing for, that we were made for with each other and with the Lord. Because she's right about that. And that, for me to, to always live to please God, Leanne to always live to please God, you living always to please God, is living a life filled with faith. Looking upward, fixing our eyes, not just heaven's coming, but to the God who is in heaven. Longing to please him. Because when we try to please someone else, right? We're worshiping them. Well, it's right for us to worship God. He is the one who should be the center of that. He, he deserves it and demands it, but deserves it. He's called us to that. But we're not in heaven yet, are we? Last time I checked. Any of you in heaven? Literally or metaphorically in all your relationships? So as Christians trying to please the Lord, we still end up with conflicts. Why is that? 
Well, it could be that a desire to please the Lord is only one-sided. If Leanne is living to please the Lord and I'm living to please myself, we will have conflict because of my sin. And then there's another common but difficult reality of living as justified sinners, fellow members of God's family, still battling our sinful desires. While we are learning what is pleasing to the Lord, Scripture says that, right? Learning, seeking to understand what is pleasing to the Lord, that defines our lives. While we do that, we don't always agree on what it means to please the Lord. If Keith is convinced that pleasing the Lord means path A, and I'm convinced that pleasing the Lord means path B, what's going to happen? We'll put it this way. What's going to happen? We're still going to end up disagreeing. We're still going to end up in conflict. We'll still have some, some measure of a fight, both convinced that Scripture and God is on our side and we are living to please Him. Paul and Barnabas ended up with this. I had to spend time in that story, but they disagreed sharply over what was pleasing to the Lord and related to John Mark, a ministry assistant of theirs. I promise I've not forgotten that we're in Genesis, though. You can turn back there. Please turn back Genesis chapter 13 again. Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen are in conflict with each other. Therefore, Abram and Lot are in conflict with each other. And, and both of them, naturally and understandably, these two kind of heads, they both want what's best for his own people and for his own flocks. This isn't small groups. These are larger groups, clans. And these aren't even necessarily sinful desires. Feed my livestock, which feeds my family. Provides for those whom I'm responsible to provide for. But it falls on Abram to resolve the conflict. Abram's the older of the two. Lot's his nephew. So Abram would be the clear, undisputed, patriarchal leader of this group. He's in charge. I mean, Abram's the boss. So as such, he would naturally get first pick. It's one of the astounding things about this story. So we would expect Abram to say, listen, Lot, it's been great wandering around together, but, it, but it's time for you to leave. I'm going to go to the good land, uh, and you go that way. Hope things work out for you. Go. And that's not what Abram says. What does Abram do instead? And this is what's astounding to this and, and bridges aspects of Scripture to us. Abram lays down his rights in humble self-denial. This is profoundly shocking. We understand very little about that culturally, but we can bridge that this doesn't make sense. Who does this? Abram does not assert his privilege of seniority. He does not insist on his rights. We love rights, don't we? Oh, we love rights. We're willing to do anything to protect our rights as Americans and just as humans. It's just the reality of those type of things, and the rights are revealing our hearts. So we're willing to get ours. He does not insist on what he was owed, what was due him legitimately. By giving up first choice of the land, he inevitably resigned himself to the worst land. Because it wasn't like everywhere was lush. 
There was an area that was, and there were areas that weren't. Giving up that, like Lot's not going to be like, oh yeah, herds and flocks, I think I'll go to the desert again. That sounds fun. He's not going to do that. So he's, he's offering those type of things. So in humility, Abram denies himself and gets lowered. Can we just be really honest? Denying yourself is the worst. It's the worst. It's so bad. It's so hard. It's so miserable. Scripture itself refers to it as dying to yourself. And it does feel like death. Willingly putting yourself in a worse position in order for someone else that you disagree with to be in a better position is the single thing that your sinful heart wants less than anything else. Like, I'd rather die physically than have to die spiritually like this. It's the worst. And if you're like, I don't know, it doesn't sound too bad, then you haven't done it in a while. But this is exactly what Abram does here. And these stories are remarkable. Genesis is amazing, right? We came back. Abram, costly obedience of faith, and he believes, and he goes, hooray, Abram, he's faithful. And then last week, we knocked that statue over. No, Abram, he's a fearful, foolish, faithless follower of God, and he's a terrible husband. But God's not done with Abram. Not by a long shot. Neither are we, just as God isn't done with us. Not by a long shot. Not done with one another. And this week, we, we see more evidence of Abram's faith and his faithfulness. He's not just one, not just a black or white character, because he's real. Real characters are nuanced and complicated, and they do right, and then they mess up, and then they do right again, and then they mess up again. We can actually look at Abram, though, and then through Abram, who do you think we see? We see Jesus. We see Jesus through Abram. Philippians 2, got to go. You got to see it for yourself. A few texts this morning. Keep your thumbs limbered up. Turning or tapping, I guess. But tap over on your phone sounds dumb. It's fine. Use your phone Bibles or whatever, but... Tap over to Philippians 2. Now, it'll be, it'll be turning your copy of God's Word is much better. Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church, probably more than anything else, he wanted them to be unified as members of Christ's body, as children of God in God's family, as servants in God's kingdom. He wanted them to be unified. He longed to hear about them that they were standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he knew that they couldn't do that if they were in conflict with one another. Unity and conflict are the opposites. He knew, like we saw in James, that if each person in the church at Philippi was focused on his or her own interests or desires, they would be in conflict, they could not be unified, and that the gospel would suffer as a result of that. So he writes this, beginning at Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, it's like, well, yeah, of course there is. 
Any participation in the Spirit? Yes. Any comfort from love? Comforted by God's love? Yes. Any affection and sympathy for one another in the body of Christ? It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, and then it gets hard. Do nothing, Christian, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Reason it out and make decisions based off of the principle that that person is more important than you. Let each of you look not to his own interests only, but also to the interests of others. I heard this described as a, a carpet mentality. Did a speech or sermon or something in high school after I'd been taught on that, so I brought a piece of carpet in and I'd forgotten about that. I, it was a classroom that you taught geometry in, Samika, when I came to visit last, last year. Put a piece of carpet on the entrance, all the classmates all came in, probably some of them sort of scuffed their way into that, and then at the end, did you hear the carpet complain? About being walked on? No. Because it didn't consider its own interests. Didn't consider its own needs. And if you're honest, and I'm honest, you're like, "Mm -mm. nope, that doesn't work. I'm not going to do that. Get walked on? Are you kidding me? I'm not getting walked on. It's because your desires are contrary to it. Maybe I'm just super unspiritual, but that just sounds terrible, right? I already said, like, I'd rather die physically than living in that type of situation. And that's the point. It is a type of death. To count others as more significant than yourselves in that type of humility without that natural selfish ambition, not looking to my own interests, it's a death to ourself. killing our desires so that they can be replaced by God's desires. Because your desires don't stay enthroned and alive and ruling, and God's desires also rule your heart. One of them has to go. And you won't get off your throne unless you're put to death. So it says, put it to death. We kill our desires, they're replaced by God's desires, and that results in meeting the desires of other people rather than our own. And every fiber of our being seems to cry out, no, that would be disastrous, and it isn't fair. It's not fair. It's not fair for me to always do her desires, Lord, no, did you, No. That's, nope, nope. Can't live that way. That's terrible. If I, if I do that, right, can you hear the prayer? Do you, do you pray honest or do you pray holy? David prayed honest. Jesus prayed honest. Lord, I don't want this. But not my will. Yours be done. If, if I do that, how will I ever get what I want? How will I ever get what I need? How will my desires be met? And it's like, that's kind of the point. That your desires will drag you to hell. What possible example could Paul give of this that would entice us to do it? 
Well, Abram did it. I don't care. Noah, be like Noah. No, uh, I won't. Be like David. Be like Daniel. Mm-mm. Not good enough. Be like Paul. Not enough. He doesn't do any of that. He gives us nothing less than the example of our Lord Jesus Christ himself in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves. This is how you should think, believers. This mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled and denied himself during his life, then humbled himself further to die on the cross. And he did that to end the conflict that we have with God because of our sin, to reconcile us to God, to end that fight. He's the perfect example that beatitude that he spoke in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, do you remember? Sons of God. Who is the Son of God? Jesus. Jesus who came to make peace between us and God, and then between us and others by delivering us from our sin and changing our hearts. And in Genesis, Abram has inherited the blessing of being God's royal son like Adam and Seth and Noah. And so as a result of God's grace in his life, Abram serves as a peacemaker here, and he images his heavenly father. Brothers and sisters, though, Jesus knows the battle that is denying yourself. He knows. He lived in that battle without ever giving in his entire life. At my best, I'm willing to go an hour. (laughs) Or maybe if I'm by myself, I'll be willing to go a day. If I was in a coma, I could probably go a week denying myself. Jesus went every moment of every hour, of every day, of every year, his entire life, with enemies probably worse than the ones that you face, far more innocent and righteous than you or I could ever be, yet he denied himself. He lived in that battle. He has been tempted in every way, beloved ones, every way, just as we are, yet he never sinned. So he knew as clearly as you know that this is hard. Denying yourself in in, in humility, laying aside rights. He had rights to more than we did, and yet he laid them aside. He did that for us. I'm so glad that's not just an example. It is, right? We're called to be like that, but, but his mind has, has been implanted into us by his Holy Spirit. It's kind of like Jesus just did it, and then like, see guys, told you. 
go do it. We're like, I can't do it. It's not it, right? But it's looking to Jesus and his mind being in us. And then we, oh, we can die by his strength, depending on his spirit, just like Jesus did. Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as you are. He never sinned. So follow the advice of this hymn, this old hymn, I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. And I think this is verse 3. Tempted and tried, I need a great Savior. One who can help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. He, all my cares and sorrows, will share. What about this, though? How is it? that Jesus could possibly endure the relentless, humiliating self-denial that he experienced in his humanity, culminating in his death. Like, how could he do that? Well, just like us, he needed to have his eyes fixed on something more than the difficulties that he was facing. And he did. Jesus had his eyes fixed on the promised blessings of his heavenly Father. He knew what was going to happen in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. You see that? Paul concluded this with these words. Therefore, because of that humility down to the point of death, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in the same way, when we lay down our rights in humble self-denial, when we die in relationships and situations, we do so trusting God and waiting, waiting in anticipation for the coming day when God will raise us up with Christ, not just like Christ, but with Christ, and then display to the entire universe how he glorified himself in and through you. That day is coming. When you die today to something because you love God, right? And it's just like, but then it's misunderstood in every way. You get stomped on and it just happens. And it's like one death leading to another death. There will come a day when the judge of all the earth will just be like, look at this. I'm glorified in this. This is what really happened. This is what everybody didn't know and didn't understand and couldn't agree with, and I'm glorified in this. That's incredible. And he will be praised. Not even just you will be vindicated. You will be vindicated. Probably not as much as you think because you're probably not as right as you think. But on those things where it really happens, you will be vindicated. God's justice will be vindicated. God will be glorified. This text mentions Lot, but keeps its focus on Abram. We're going to just speed past Lot. We're going to get back to him later. Lot leaves. Abram settles in the land of Canaan. He doesn't build a house, so he's essentially still a stranger and a wanderer. He's a pilgrim in the land of promise. He's still living in a tent. Seems to be set up there for a while, so in my mind, it's those people who have a camper, and then they build the porch onto it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's still a camper, but it's going to be there for a while. He's going to live here for a while, and he's going to face the consequences of his self-denying decision to give Lot first choice of land. He has to answer to his wife, to his foreman, 
to those others who are like, man, I'm going to have to wander so much further looking for this guy's stuff because of this decision he made. It's going to be that much more difficult. Abram just sort of settles there. He just stays stuck in the consequences of his own right decision, the suffering for the consequences, costly obedience for these things. But then right in the midst of that, Abram hears from God again. He said that he had settled in the land of Canaan in verse 12. We don't know how long it happens. And then the Lord speaks to Abram after Lot's gone, verse 14. So we see God reassures Abram of his promised blessings. Abram laid down his rights, humble self-denial. Then God reassures Abram of his promised blessings. I want to draw your attention to something that you need to keep in mind when reading biblical narratives and the whole aspect of Scripture. I mean, generally speaking, only the significant and exciting parts of these people's lives are recorded for us. Right? Like, that makes sense, doesn't it? Like, that's what we read, and it's like, wow, these are some amazing things. But there is often a lot of quiet, boring, mundane space in between these episodes. Like, everything in their lives wasn't exciting. But if we start with Abram in Genesis 12, all of biblical history takes place over around 2,000 years of time. And the Bible is filled with examples of God speaking directly to his people, but how much of their lives was made up of directly hearing from God? And the answer is not very much. We read of God speaking to Abram a lot. And because we need to learn from what God said, that's the point of the text. But Abram did not hear from God directly every day. We have no textual basis to make that claim. Matter of fact, I think we have good reason to, to say he did not hear from God every day like that. So most of Abram's life was boring and ordinary and spent living in light of the truth that he had received from God in the past. And the same goes for us. Most of our lives is spent not being struck with new truth, but instead figuring out how to live in light of the truth we already know. Did you get that? Most of your life should not be and will not be filled with you being just struck with new truth every single day. Most of your life will be defined by you living in light of the truth that you already know. However, in his marvelous grace and abundant mercy, I think God does provide fresh truth for his people at key moments. Fresh truth. Often to comfort and strengthen us right in the thick of trials and difficulties, sometimes brought on by our need for humble self-denial. By fresh truth, I don't mean extra biblical revelation. We're not adding letters to the Bible. We don't need to add letters to the Bible. We have everything necessary for life and godliness for us contained in the pages of Scripture. So we don't need a truth that's never been heard before. We need the truth that's been heard millions and millions of times. But the Holy Spirit does open our eyes to see the significance, the application, the immediate 
relevance of specific passages to our lives at specific moments when we really need it. And often I think it's because our hearts are finally humbled and broken enough to be able to receive that fresh truth. And we sang one of those passages for me this morning. By God's clear providence, I think I've shared that story, I could share it with you again, but clearly from the hand of the Lord, the first passage that I preached when I returned to the pulpit after Leanne's parents, who were believers, died in a plane crash, if you didn't know, many of you do, that's the first text, Psalm 121, decided months beforehand, this is the text, the Lord will keep you from all evil, he will keep your life The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Oh no, I wrestled with that text. And I thought I was wrestling for it for her. I found out in the pulpit I was wrestling for it for me. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. I know the Lord was faithful to that promise to them and to us. He did keep them. And he kept them right through death and brought them immediately into his presence because of their faith in Jesus. He kept his promises. And that truth, fresh truth from God to comfort me at a key moment in my life, God speaks fresh truth from his word to his people, key moments. I'll never forget that. And I know many of you have similar stories of a passage of Scripture providing fresh truth to you at key moments. Anybody have it on the tip of their tongue right now? Really? Will you tell us? I just excluded the 50% of you introverts. Yes. Gail. Hmm. Yeah, what does that say? Psalm 27, what was the, the piece of that for you? Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah. Amen. When you exit those type of scenarios and you have those texts, it's just kind of like, it's like Psalm 121 is mine now. I don't know if it's yours, but I know it's mine. It's Psalm 27 is hers. This is like, and it's thankfully it's sufficient. It doesn't just have to be mine. Maybe it is yours too. If not, you're welcome to it, but I get to keep it also. Right? It's that fresh truth. God does that. And God did that here for Abram. Genesis 13, verse 17, from an earthly perspective, Abram had gotten the short end of the stick by giving Lot the better land. And then God speaks to him in the context of that type of loss and suffering. And there's something that's really easy to miss in verse 14, that it's it's less of a command and it's actually more of a request. It's just this piece that's really easily missed. One commentator goes so far as to encourage translating what God says here. Please lift up your eyes and look. Please. There are only four occasions in the Old Testament when God words something like this. 
I'm not trying to, you know, is, is that huge? Maybe. Is it not so huge? I don't know. But this, it's different. A command to a request. God isn't begging Abram to do anything, of course. Not only, oh, please, Abram, don't give up on me. That's not how God acts toward his people, but he is making a very personal request to encourage and strengthen Abram's faith. Like this, Abram, you may have lost everything from a merely earthly perspective, but from a heavenly perspective, from my perspective, all of this land is yours, including what you just allowed Lot to claim. Lot went eastward, and God says, well, look north, look south, look east, look west. It's all yours. From my perspective, it's like you didn't lose anything. My promise to you remains the same, and this whole land is yours. And I will give it all to you, a very personal aspect of that promise that's different than what he said before. I give it to you, Abram. And then his promise becomes permanent. I'm going to give it to your offspring forever. God is amplifying the aspect of his promise. What what is his plan? What is the nature of what he's been saying to Abram? Like we started in chapter 12, just go to the land I'm going to show you. Make you a great nation, right? Uh, you'll be mine, I'll be yours, blessing and cursing. Then he gets to the land, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. And now I give it to you and to your offspring forever. A permanence to this promise, right? This is a, God just keeps kind of peeling back more and more layers about these things. And then when it comes to that offspring, that people, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So I was trying to think about that, right? Dust, not in a desert, not sand, whatever that looked like, right? A dry day in a wilderness. I don't live there, so that's just not misses. But what about this? If God had given Abram West Virginia as his land, maybe he would have said this. As you hike through these hills, count the leaves on the trees if you can count them. That's how vast your offspring will be. And then he tells Abram, go walk through the land. This is great, right? Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And we could read that as just like, well, so just keep wandering. Yeah, just you're still a pilgrim. But one author, like, the wording, the phrasing of this is, is not just a pilgrim wandering around, but actually the kind of, the kind of what, what a king would do. Like, this becomes a royal regal survey of property. Like, go look, go survey your land, king, because I give it to you. That's different than just shuffle along setting up tents. Because this is the promise that God has made to Abram. But, but did he give it to him? You ask that? Did God give this land to Abram? Uh, Acts chapter 7, Stephen, in his speech or sermon, gives an interesting insight into this. He says, yet God gave Abram no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. Genesis 13, I will give it to you. Acts 7, he didn't give him the inheritance. The author of Hebrews leans in on this too, not just for Abram, but for Isaac and Jacob as well. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So the question remains, did God give the land of Canaan to Abram? 
Yes, he did. But Abram never took possession of that land that God had given him, nor did his son Isaac or his son Jacob or his 12 sons. It was several generations before that actually happened, 400 years before Abram's offspring would begin to take possession of the land that God had promised to Abram. And a number of other generations before, for a brief time, they had the full land spectrum under Solomon, and then it was dissolved. To you, to your offspring, forever. But did he? And here we're introduced to a really important concept of the fulfillment of God's promises, often phrased with these words, already, but not yet. God's promises are so certain that they can be spoken of as fulfilled even when they are not yet realized or enjoyed by his people. We can still be waiting to receive what has been promised, but we wait with a confidence and certainty because it is God who has promised. And Abram and the land of Canaan here is a prime example of that. And then I thought of another story where David, like soon after we meet David, he's king, anointed as king by Samuel according to God's clear command. So who's king of Israel? David's king of Israel. But who's king of Israel? Saul's king of Israel. And David refuses to act out and take privilege for a promise that he has already received, rightfully bearing the title of king, yet he refuses to act out on that. So is he king or is he not? Yes. There's a certainty to the fulfillment of God's promise, but it was not yet realized or enjoyed by David. It would be a number of years before he would do that. And as Christians, we have promises of God to us Promises about our overcoming the world. Do you feel like you've overcome the world? We have promises about sin and death being conquered by Jesus' resurrection. You are no longer enchained or enslaved to sin. That's true. Do you enjoy that fully? Oh, Jesus conquered death. And before we meet by next week, likely a yet another of his followers will be with him having died. Our numbers reduced over the course of the years. Your family size reduced. My family size reduced because believers died. But I thought Jesus conquered death. He did already, but not yet. Is that, I think these are the two hardest parts about faith, right? <laughs> about following God. Deny yourself and wait for the fulfillment of a promise. That's where faith shows itself to be faith. Trust shows itself to be trust. Trusting while waiting. One of the most difficult tests of our faith. Especially when we are called to die physically while still believing and not having received what was promised. Just like Abram and Isaac and Jacob did. They all died not having received what was promised. But it was theirs. Because God said it was theirs. And oh, how we're tempted to doubt. 
Some, sometimes we, we would doubt God's power. I guess he couldn't keep his promises. And others doubt God's goodness or his faithfulness. I guess maybe he didn't want to. Maybe he does it for other people, but he wouldn't do it for me. I guess God doesn't keep his promises because here I am sick. Here I am dying. Here I am suffering. Where's that promised resurrection? Where's the victory that overcomes the world? But faith calls us to trust God and question our understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. We could say, well, did I understand? This is, this is a valuable question. It's not the only question, but it is a valuable question. It's like, read something. This is oh, a promise from God. Trust God. I'll see this. It's like to ask, well, did I understand that promise properly? Right? You can't, you can't uh, fault God for not keeping something that he never intended to keep for you, right? That it wasn't a promise. Did I understand all of what the fulfillment of that promise meant? That's a valid question, but sometimes we do. Like we understand and it's still just not yet. So by faith, we, we confess as absolutely true, God always faithfully keeps his promises. But by faith, we also need to accept that in his sovereign plan, he is in no rush to fulfill them. And that's not faithlessness on his part. God doesn't count time like we count time. We're in a rush for everything. He is in a rush for nothing. He's doing so much more than we could ever imagine about those things. But let me assure you of this also, not just that God will fulfill his promises, but even if God's fulfillment of his promise to you is different than what you expected, a difference will never be less. Like the difference that comes between what you thought the promise meant and what the promise actually meant, the fulfillment, what God does is always better than what you expected, never less. Abram promised an earthly land, a land where he only ever lived in a tent and he never owned a foot's length of Canaan. But then Hebrews says that he was looking forward, uh, not to a place where he could build a house, but to a city, and not just a city here, a city with foundations, a city who's designed, whose designer and builder is God himself. Right? He didn't just want to live in Jericho. Right? He wanted to live in this heavenly city, and he desired a better country. This is like if you just had all of Canaan, you would have lived there, died there, that's it. Then what? So Abram desired a better country. He desired a heavenly one, and God prepared for him a city, a heavenly city, an eternal dwelling in God's house on the new earth that neither Abram nor we can possibly fathom the greatness of. <laughs> God does not let down. You won't be disappointed. And we sang today, the calm will be the better because of the storms that we endure. And my dear fellow Christians, Christ followers, as you deny yourself, Deny pleasing yourself and crucifying that so that you can instead be free to please your God and King. Let me assure you, once again, from the word of God, that what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 
as Christ denied himself and laid down his rights to be trampled on by others, and he calls us to follow the same path in which he followed, trusting God that some conflicts will find resolution in that and others won't, but it's not the end of the story until the resurrection happens and Christ's glory is displayed. And that is sufficient grace for us to motivate that type of death, that type of misery, (laughs) right? And it's a certain fulfillment that we will have that. Your faithfulness in laying down your rights for the other fellow sinners who are sitting in this room, one of whom stands behind the pulpit right now, that is not overlooked by God. He sees and he knows. He understands. He will make all things right. And as surely, as surely as God raised and exalted Christ after his self-denying death, he will also raise and exalt you alongside of Christ, and he will be glorified. May God use these promises of his word as a source of fresh comfort to us today. everything in us does cry out against this part of your plan because we are dumb and blind. You are good and wise and you wrench open our hands and rend our hearts so that we will see our idols and flee from them to your grace. Rule in us, our Heavenly Father, Teach us to deny ourselves. Thank you for Christ as Savior and an example who calls us to do what he has already done for us and strengthens us to do it. And we have a, may, may we have eyes to see that you are glorified in these, these things. Only you, you can do that, that you can. Would you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.